Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome back to Talks Talk, the toxicology podcast from the University of Massachusetts Division of Toxicology. I'm Matt Zuckerman. We're going to have a few segments today. Our first segment is going to be an excited discussion of excited delirium, which should prove pretty rewarding. And then after that, we have a Tox Pearl from Stephanie Weiss, one of our residents. And then we're going to close with a special uh, sort of impromptu discussion of the recent uh, NACCT, the conference in D.C. So myself, Ed Boyer, and Kavita Babu will be kind of riffing about what we liked, didn't like, things that we saw at the conference. So stick around for your dose of Tox Talk. Welcome to another segment here on Talks Talk. Uh, this is Matt Zuckerman, one of the fellows at UMass Division of Toxicology. With me today is Steve Bird and Adam Darnabid. Hello, I'm Steve Bird. I'm the Emergency Medicine Program Director at UMass and also one of the toxicology faculty. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Adam Darnabid. I'm one of the third year residents at the UMass Emergency Medicine Program. So I want to talk about excited delirium. Uh, which is an interesting topic and which goes by a number of names. Some people call it the excited delirium syndrome. Some people call it Bell's mania. It's also been, a portion of it's been referred to as uh, restraint asphyxia. So it goes by a, a lot of names, but it's really something germane to emergency medicine and toxicology and something that um, probably underappreciated. So I think we hope to shed some light here on excited delirium. It's, it's hard to shed light on an audio format, but we're going to do our best. <laughs> so uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about what is excited delirium. Um, Adam, do you have any idea what it is? Oh, you know, I'm thinking about this, and when I hear delirium and excited, I think of what we do every day in patients in the ED who are aggressive and difficult to control with undifferentiated angriness, making our life hard and my gut reaction when I see somebody acting out, although inappropriate at times, is let's tie them down as fast and as hard as we can and make them nice and calm. And and that's not always a bad gut reaction, but I think it has to go along with other things too. Because when you're working in an emergency department, especially safety has to be the prime concern. And if there is a patient that has an altered mental status, I mean, delirium in and of itself, the morbidity associated with it is incredibly high. A delirious patient that's admitted to the hospital has, I think it's double digits mortality. Um, and is a danger to themselves and others. So you want to restrain them to protect themselves, protect them from hurting themselves, pulling out IVs, also protect staff and violence against nurses and others. But you always have to figure out why they're delirious and why they're altered and what's going on. Um, and especially when they're in an excited state, um, I think the hardest thing is making sure that you don't also become excited um, and lose your head. It's difficult not to get sucked down into the 
craziness that happens with the police or security or whoever else chasing your patient down the hallway. Um, and that also has a wonderful tendency to let the entire department get a little out of control, too, because nothing like one excited delirium to make everybody around them rather excited. That's right. That's actually a good plug, just talking about delirium in emergency department patients. There's some wonderful work being done at Vanderbilt by Jin Han, who I believe has a K-23 award to look at um, diagnosing delirium in ED patients and following them longitudinally for outcomes. Um, so here's a, a shout-out to Jin Han at Vanderbilt. Very good. Hopefully, maybe he's listening. Um, but also what I find when I walk into a room and everyone else is excited and agitated and, you know, as soon as you walk in, they go, we need restraints, we need order the restraints, order the meds. I like to be the calm person in the room because it's my job to keep my head and to keep oversight on things and to talk softly to the patient and to find out what's going on and to get more information. Um, and then if the patient spits at me or tries to hurt me or is agitated or is becoming unstable, then I can walk away or I can figure out kind of giving them meds and restrain them. But I find that um, if you can keep a cool head in those situations, uh, you can get a better grasp about what's going on. That's right. Yeah, this, these are the patients who are not redirectable um, and who uh, have five people holding them down, and for good reason. Um, but... I think Adam made a point about uh, holding them down. And the point I want to get, well, actually, one of my punchlines is, kind of one of my mantras is, no physical restraints without chemical restraints. So I'll say it now, and I'll say it again at the end, and we'll talk about why, at least I think that's that should be uh, how we manage these patients in the emergency department. It always seems that whenever we have an agitated patient, the physical restraints are exponentially easier to get than the chemical restraints. It's much easier that the, if somebody comes running with a soft or handcuffs a lot faster than we can get whatever meds we decide to restrain that patient, making you know the control of these patients a little bit more challenging. That's true. Uh, I mean, it does take a little bit of time, but nevertheless, I, that doesn't. Um, we're still obligated to chemically re restrain those patients, so you have to do what you have to do initially. But as I'll show, we'll discuss here shortly. Those are high-risk patients. It's a high-risk um, situation for sudden death. I mean, because they generally have catecholamines. They've got often, sometimes they have substances on board which are adrenergic. They've got adrenaline going. Your fight-or-flight response kicks in when you're being held. I mean, these guys' CKs can go up pretty high. And um, the physical restraints are, are quicker to initiate. I mean, you can block a fist quicker than you can sedate someone. But as soon as you initiate mechanical restraint, the next question has to be, how am I sedating them? Because um, very often, it just gets them more riled up. Just like after I intubate someone, as soon as I intubate someone, um, my next question is, how am I going to continue to sedate them? It just it, it, So the two have to go hand in hand. I think the initial response to any kind of agitation and physical violence or physical agitation is to intervene. But the, the next question has to be, and now, how am I going to sedate them? So I think... Uh you know, what is excited delirium? Um, it, once again, it goes by no, several names, but in general, I think a good way to think of it is a combative, agitated, delirious person is exhibiting ag uh, excited delirium. Some people would say the excited delirium syndrome is then those patients who subsequently have sudden cardiac, sudden death. Um, and there are some characteristics of those patients 
um, which or there are some characteristics which are present in most of those patients. And those are, like you said, Matt, oftentimes they have some stimulant or psychotropic medication on board, which has commonly been cocaine or PCP, but I guess it could be bath salts or uh, some form of amphetamines as well. There's also a significant portion of those patients have um, psychiatric illness. And uh, interestingly, also, a significant uh, percentage of those patients are overweight and obese, which may put them at increased risk for this. And the overwhelming majority are males. I think that's often associated with the stimulant use. Um, and I have to say the majority of my patients in general are sadly overweight or obese, but it seems like also it's an independent risk factor in this particular syndrome. It probably is. The other interesting thing, when does excited delirium happen? Well, this has been recognized for at least 150 years. Um, there's an interesting article by Luther Bell where he describes what's been called Bell's mania, which is a schizophrenic patients who have ex extreme agitation and um, without treatment, a high percentage of them die. And that was published in one of my favorite journals, that was the American Journal of Insanity in, I believe it was 1849. I think we have one of their articles coming up next month in Journal Club, right? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I don't know when the American Journal of Insanity ceased to be published. No, that was pretty good. I like their swimsuit edition every year, though. That's It flies off the books, off the shelves. It that's does. That's true. Uh, but anyway, it was. it's interesting because, so this has been known for some time, but at at what point, when did this form of excited delirium cease to exist in um, schizophrenic patients? And the answer is about the time when Thorazine was introduced in the 1950s. So uh, at that time, up until now, for the last 60 years, the, the incidence of sudden death in these patients from acute delirium uh, is really negligible. But uh, so while that part's been controlled, we now see this excited delirium in patients on stimulants, which reports of them really started in about the 1980s. I sub I'm not quite sure why that is, but uh, maybe with increased cocaine use, although cocaine's been around for a while. And we see it now with PCP and other things. And you see increased reports of it, um, at least purported to be caused by the use of the taser electrical um, weapon. Well, taser, taser is, um, I remember, uh, it seems like there are these things that come out of nowhere and then everyone talks about them forever and then we sort of very quickly forget them and people are left doing studies that, that nobody reads anymore because nobody cares. But, well, taser, so there was this uh, big idea with the, uh, agitated delirium patients too that, that if, or uh, not even agitated delirium patients, just agitated patients, you taser them and, and they die and the whole idea was that it had to be from the taser. Because I do have to say that running electricity through somebody doesn't seem normal. It just seems wrong. Um, although apparently it works for depression. Um, I don't know if there's been any research into whether or not repeated tasering is effective for depression. But um, That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. Did you see anything? Did you see anything in your research, though, uh, on uh, excited delirium that maybe covered... Uh, is there a technical term for taser? Because I realize we're using the, the trade term again and again. Is there like electrical, uh, not sedation, but uh, incapacitation or something? Uh, electrical control. 
Oh, I don't know what this is. You're right. You shouldn't say tased because taser is the noun. That's the actual device. And typically, it's the taser X26. So I suppose we can say after you zapped someone with it. I don't know if that's entirely scientific. What if you provided electrical redirection? <laughs> that sounds like a like a something using a child. Electrical encouragement? I don't Timmy, know. Timmy, Timmy was uh, misbehaving, so we provided some electrical encouragement. But um, it seems like a lot of the new studies that are coming out on that just, I mean, they demonstrate maybe a little bit in increase in heart rate, but not much, and not much else change in terms of bioparameters and electrocardiographic findings and things like that. Yeah, there have been lots of studies, and certainly in full disclosure, several, most, not probably most, are funded by makers of the Taser X26 but you're right. So in the, there was a recent study by, and they found virtually no change in any of the physiologic parameters, a small increase in the lactate to maybe five, which was the smallest increase of any of the, of the simulated scenarios that they used. There have been lots of studies looking at what are the respiratory parameters of someone immediately after having the taser applied. And, and I think the answer is that there's really not much to it. So then how do you explain some of the cases of sudden death after having a taser applied? It's hard because the court of public opinion, I, by that I mean YouTube, has lots of videos showing people get tased pretty successfully. As we all know, don't tase me, bro. But it seems to be uh, more benign when out there in the public forum like that, and generally accepted by a lot of people as safe. There's also two different methods to use a taser on someone. There's the drive-stun method, where you apply the current directly from the device, and there's the barb method, where you actually shoot the barbs into the patient. And that causes total body contractions, unlike the, the drive-stun mode. That doesn't cause contraction of your muscles. It just hurts. So they're different. Obviously, the barb one is then at greatest risk. And there have been studies, um, i trying to think of who they were done by. It may have also been done by Jim Miner at Hennepin County, where they apply the, the stun gun, the taser electrodes to swine and try to induce dysrhythmias, etc. And it turns out that there is a very small theoretical risk to that under optimal conditions when you've got the probes very near the pig's heart and you apply the electrical electricity um, at an extraordinarily short vulnerable time in the action potential. So it really seems theoretical more than real. I think the other thing that affects these reports is very often these are reports where a patient comes in agitated, gets restrained, and then the outcome is death. And so um, not a lot of EDs or shops are always wanting to push to publish those cases from their institution um, because it doesn't always look good for them. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And who does publish those reports? Newspapers, media outlets. So they become high-profile cases when oftentimes the science behind it is lacking. I wonder aloud, I don't know if this is correct or not, but if this is the reason that the police love to bring us their agitated, delirious patients all the time, because these were the people who used to die in lockup overnight, too. They used to take the agitated patient and put him in a cell far away, got forgotten about, forgotten about overnight, they would end up dead in the morning. I wonder if that was a large contributor to this, and now we're just paying attention to it, because 
kind of have to if we're taking care of these patients and responsible for their well-being. That, that could be, right? When it's not unlike intoxicated patients. They used to throw in a cell and have them sober up in the morning, and now they sober up in our hallways, hallway beds. Yes. Otis the drunk used to, in Mayberry, May, Otis didn't go to the hospital. He went to Andy's jail, and he sobered it off. But now I think there's definitely um, a huge amount of uh, resistance from law enforcement, uh, partially because of liability and safety to hold on to these patients longer. And so it seems like a lot of them get transferred to hospitals. Um, and have, and so we're getting more data on the outcomes of some of these patients. Uh, additionally, sometimes it feels like it strains the system. Sometimes. I got a question for you. Adam. Uh-oh. Do you have any idea? Well, as you sit here, what's your venous pH? Don't take too long to answer this. Yeah, we'll say 737. Okay, we'll call it 7.4. Okay. If you were to now run a 400-meter sprint as hard as you can to exhaustion and immediately sample your pH and your lactate, what would those be? Probably have a pH of 6 because I would have arrested at about the <laughs> 300th meter. I'm going to guess... Somewhere around 7.2, maybe? And what about a lactate? Uh, just high enough to keep me in the ICU, so how about 5? <laughs> well, it's interesting. So this has been known for a long time. If you take conditioned or non-conditioned runners, have them run 400 meters, draw venous blood for pH and lactate, their pH... A completion of just 400 meters, which may take about a minute of, ex of exertion, will be around 7.0. And their lactate will be somewhere around 10 to 15. Adam not being a conditioned runner. Um, That's right. I'm out of breath thinking about it. <laughs> so uh, if you think about what a patient who may or may not be have uh, psychi psychiatric illness, who may or may not be overweight, who may or may not be revved up on cocaine or PCP or bath salts, who is struggling against resistance, you can imagine perhaps what their um, physiologic status is. And so uh, I think the physiology of runners provides some basis to understand the physiology of excited delirium. Yeah, so there have been some interesting work done recently. Uh, Jim Miner... Uh, has published several things on this, looking, trying to determine what is the physiology uh, during restraint. Um, actually, before then, there was actually, people have looked at this in primates, non-human primates, not humans, but non-human primates, holding them down with or without sedation and then measuring lactate and pH. And surprisingly, if you hold down a rhesus macaque for a couple minutes, they also will have pH most of the time below 7.2, um, and something like 40% will have pH of less than 7.1. So I think that's kind of further evidence about at least my theory about why there is sudden death in these patients. But there was also a very interesting article published in 2010 in Academic Emergency Medicine by the first and last officer were Ho and Miner, uh, Jim Miners at Hennepin County, where they looked at simulated arrest scenarios and looked at the physiology in those patients, in those people. So they had various scenarios. One was they would run 150 meters and jump over a small wall. 
So you mean police arrest, not cardiac arrest. That's right. I'm sorry. Okay. I was wondering how they did a simulated arrest experiment simulated with that. Simulated police arrest. Okay. So they'd run 150 meters, jump over a wall, and sample their blood. They also did, they um, had someone punch a heavy boxing bag for, I believe it was 45 seconds or a minute. There was the simulated scenario where they would use the Taser X-26 on a patient. And they would look at baseline and then pH and lactate, amongst other things, every two minutes up to ten minutes post-exercise or post-exertion. And they found that the punching bag, ten minutes after hitting a punching bag, for a minute, your pH was still, on average, 7.0 with lactates of 17. And just a 150-meter sprint jumping over a wall, ten minutes later, a pH of 7.2 and a lactate of almost 12. So... And these were brief durations. You're talking a minute of punching a punching bag. I suspect that people who are fighting the police who are jazzed up on cocaine are probably struggling for longer than a minute. So I, I can only imagine what their physiology is then. And again, what's not here is the PCO2, which I think is a critical part of this. Now, why why, why do you think the PCO2 is... So Adam, do you... I'm just going back, I'm pondering these numbers and to put it in perspective of other things we know, you know, our septic patients when we're frequent looking at ABGs and lactates, I mean, this is almost a fatal lactate and acidosis in these patients. These aren't small numbers by any stretch of the means. A lactate over 10 is, has, carries an incredibly grim prognosis and a pH of 7 again, it carries an incredibly grim prognosis. These aren't, by any stretch, small numbers, but these are young, healthy people who, military recruits or med students who seem to do well and tolerate that well, giving us, you know, an impression on how able the body is to cope with these huge acid loads or acidemia and acidosis is. Yeah, what do you think, so Adam, after you finish your 400-meter sprint and we check your, your pH is 7.0 and your lactate is 12, what do you think your PCO2 will be? I'm going to have to guess it's somewhere around 2 because I'm panting so hard. I, I don't, you know, I, I have some respiratory capacity. It's going to be hard to blow all that CO2 off, but I'm going to guess it's pretty low because I'm going to be out of breath thinking about it right now. Yeah, that's right. So your vital, your tidal volume with strenuous exercise can exceed 100 liters per minute. And what you're doing then is trying to blow off the CO2 as much as you can to normalize your pH. So your, your PCO2 is going to be in the, say, 24 range. It's going to be certainly lower than 40. So now you've got a pH of 7.0, a lactate of 12, and a PCO2 of 24, let's say. What happens then if you decrease the ability for that patient or you to ventilate. And there's, I think there's other uh, conceptually, or, or we actually have patients where we address this or think of this as toxicologists. When's that, Matt? Yeah, I think 
I think that definitely you're you're kind of describing a patient who's got a metabolic acidosis, who's compensatory with a huge respiratory alkalosis, who all of a sudden maybe we affect their respiratory dynamics. And that's kind of classically when you intubate a salicylate overdose. That's right. um, uh, and traditionally, just to, to remind everyone, so salicylate's a fancy term for, for aspirin. Essentially, they, they ingest it, they get a central respiratory alkalosis, which is initially because of the effect on the brain, but then also they develop a metabolic acidosis. And then they're essentially compensating, or very often possibly, hopefully overcompensating initially, but eventually they're compensating for metabolic acidosis. And then when you go to intubate these patients, the first thing you do is paralyze them. So all of a sudden, that PCO2 that might have been 20 is jacked up to 60. They already have an acidosis. Their pH drops. They go into cardiac arrhythmia and, and they die, which is kind of why one of the basic tenets of, of um, aspirin and salicylate overdoses never intubate the salicylate overdose. That's right. They, those patients will routinely have miniventilations of 60 liters, and it's very difficult to provide that through a ventilator. I think of it exactly the same way. This is just like a severe salicylism, salicylate toxic patient that if you are going to intubate them, I routinely give two amps of bicarb right before I paralyze them because I realize that their PCO2 is going to rise unless we get the tube in very quickly, and it will worsen their acidosis. Spoken like a true toxicologist. Always recommend the bicarb. Thank An you. amp of bicarb a day keeps the toxicologist away. But in this case, I said two amps. Two amps. It'll keep both the fellow and the attending toxicologist away. This is true. And Adam, two amps of bicarb being? Keeping the medical examiner away? Well, how much sodium bicarb is that? I have no clue. So one amp in most institutions is traditionally 50 milliequivalents of sodium bicarb. So very often, if we run a drip, we do three amps yeah. in D5W, so it's about 150. Although amp is the universal, I think it's Latin for I don't know the units. And uh, <laughs> so whenever you want to give something, you just give a quote-unquote amp. It will probably be forbidden and verboten by uh, JCO at some point. That uh, You're probably right. It's similar to morphine. Um, I usually say I would like to give two grains of morphine, but I increasingly people don't know what I mean when I say that. So, unfortunately, I'm forced to write milligrams. These darn international units and standards. Whatever happened to sonometers? I think it's only for pathologists. Uh, they use sonometers, yes. But, um, but the I other... think it's for people who want to sound smart, or they want to sound like they speak French, but they're neither. But getting back also to your point, Adam, about the... the about the elevated lactate. And I think that's an excellent point because we so often um, in medicine get so fixated on fads and numbers in the vacuum without applying them. And so with sepsis, the reason why an elevated lactate is so important is because it's essentially signaling a level of sears and a level of um, uh, perfusion and circulation that is so low that the body is generating lactate. And that's a sign that the infection is going to get even worse. Versus in, in the beauty of tox is you're very often dealing with young, relatively otherwise healthy patients with an acute insult. And if you can get them through that acute insult, they can recover. Um, and I guess that's sort of like a marathon. Um, in theory, it's an acute insult and hopefully these are healthy people, but, but our body has a huge capacity to improve. And, and unlike a bad pneumonia that's causing that elevated lactate, if the person stops running, and I find that I can't get my lactate much above really three before I, you know, want a sandwich. Um, 
than or a muffin. Or a muffin. That's true. But anyway, if they if you can stop it and intervene quickly, then then the the survival is is really great. And so this topic is really important because there is a very narrow window of vulnerability, um, and you can really have a huge impact. Yeah, that's true. The the other I think interesting fact about excited delirium is that the cases that are reported and often these patients have a cardiac arrest in the emergency department or right before, but the survival is, is really abysmal. It's the same survival as asystole from other, other causes. And that's the most common initial rhythm detected in these patients asystole. It's not VFib or VTAC. And so I think that speaks to this being a profound metabolic abnormality. There was one case published in Academic Emergency Medicine by Hick et al. in 1999. And they had a patient who had a cardiac arrest in the emergency department and an ABG done either immediately before or immediately after the cardiac arrest. And they found that the patient had a pH of 6.8 and a PCO2 of more than 100 with an undetectable bicarb. Yeah, I think that's that's a recipe for death, the, those particular numbers. Absolutely. So that is one of the few cases where they actually report the PCO2. And so I really think it gets to a to a ventilatory problem that you, they're going to have a metabolic acidosis, as we've demonstrated by Adam running 400 meters around the track. We know there's there they have a lactidemia and an acidemia, but they should have a compensatory respiratory alkalosis. And if you take that away by having five people lie on top of you, have a knee stuck in the back of your neck, be face down on, on a soft mattress, etc., then I think that's leads to a respiratory acidosis and a profound acid, metabolic acidosis as well. And from an emergency perspective, these patients are notoriously difficult to evaluate because very often, even once you get them sort of restrained or down, it's not, oh, now I get a beautiful EKG in terms of talking about what the arrhythmia is or what the rhythm is. Very often, even if they, if they continue to be excited and delirious, these are patients that nurses and people don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole. So you still don't get electrocardiograms that are all that great if they're still moving, if they're still in an excited state. And when five people are on top of a patient, the last thing you can adequately do is actually examine the patient and know, you know, what their um, ventilatory capacity is and whether or not they're moving air and whether or not their airway is obstructed. Yeah, I think we've all heard the patient or seen the patient probably that is getting restrained and they say, I can't breathe. And, and what are people's response to that usually? Oh, you're breathing just fine. But Stop in fact, I, I think what they're saying is they're, they're feeling the result of hypercarbia. And they feel like they need to, maybe they are breathing, they probably are, but they need to breathe more to, to blow off that CO2. Just thinking about it, you know, these, everything's pointing us in the direction of an incredibly high risk patient, underappreciated as much. These patients are at risk to die on us right in front of our eyes. And patients that aren't fun to evaluate, aren't easy to evaluate, and are really causing problems for us and our staff, making it more challenging for us. There's pitfalls in these patients everywhere we look, requiring us to treat them appropriately and sometimes aggressively up front with not just hard restraints, but using alternative methods like chemical restraints. That's a good segue. One of my mantras is no physical restraints without chemical restraints. So I've, I've said it once here. I should probably say it again later because I think that's very important. Um, and wanted to get back to the CO2 a little bit. There have been studies looking at 
respiratory parameters with different positions. And the best data, I think, comes from the anesthesia literature. They have controlled environments where they can put patients supine prone, etc. And uh, I think the data is fairly good that when you put someone prone and you prevent excursion of their abdomen and chest wall without the use of bolsters under the shoulders or their or the pelvis, that you decrease their, their ventilation. And I think we have other evidence for that as well. Additionally, whenever you do adjust the position of somebody, you also have to keep in mind um, sort of the larger airway structures. And very often these are patients who are anatomically challenged to begin with, um, large necks, lots of tissue. Um, and uh, so sometimes they have sort of sleep apnea. And so when you force them into positions where their head is flexed or their neck is flexed, um, or if they are face down sort of into a mattress because nobody wants to hear them scream anymore, um, you're definitely affecting their ventilation. And a quick check with a pulse oximeter might make you feel better that their oxygenation is fine, but the real question in addition to that is what is their ventilation and what is going on with their PCO2? And really the only way you're going to get that information is, is uh, through a blood draw, is through getting a gas. Um, yeah, they've people have looked at that. Uh, Ted Chan has published several articles, most notably maybe in, in 1997 in Annals of Emergency Medicine, they looked at what are the respiratory mechanics of patients in these one or two different restraint positions, one being the classic hogtie position, when a patient is prone with their legs bent up behind them and their hands and feet tied together. And they, they claimed there was no clinically significant difference in ventilation in that position versus regular seating. But I don't think they, I don't think that position or lying prone with a 25 pound weight on your back is, I don't think that approximates to any significant degree having five police officers on top of you with their knees in your back and your head smashed down into a soft mattress. So while they claim there was no change in this position, I don't think that's I don't think that's clinically relevant to what we're talking about. Especially when you have to imagine that ventilation is not just ventilation. Ventilation is removal of CO2. CO2 is produced by metabolic demand. And so in a calm, healthy patient who is at rest, whose basal metabolic rate is pretty low, sure, like decreasing their ventilatory capacity or keeping it steady by having their arms behind their head is reasonable. But in somebody whose heart rate is 150, whose blood pressure is 200, who's diaphoretic, who's just been fighting with the police for 20 minutes, is now being restrained, their metabolic demand is huge. And, and if you look at these people's um, metabolic requirements um, with sort of invasive metabolic studies and looking at the amount of CO2 they're breathing off to calculate their energy expenditure, it's huge. And that's when their ventilatory demand goes up also. And we've all seen acidotic patients who come in saying, I'm dyspneic or I can't breathe or they're a little tachypneic and they don't have pneumonia and they don't have a pulmonary problem, but they're acidotic. And, and what they're sensing in their dyspnea is their inability to ventilate appropriately. And it can be a very subtle finding. And so I, I think these studies are incredibly hard to do. Really what you have to do is you have to get somebody, a volunteer. You have to get them jacked up on crack or cocaine or something. Then you have to chase them a few miles, shoot at them along the way, get them to climb a wall. Then you hold them down. Then you swear at them for a while. <laughs> Then you bring them into the emergency department, you throw them down, you have a new set of people swear at them, and then you see how they're breathing. But 
in a calm, healthy volunteer who's sort of doing yoga with their arms behind their head, I don't know that it accurately represents the situation. I couldn't agree more. I think you'll have trouble getting that study through the IRB. I think we just have to change how we word it. it would, instead of say shoot, how about encourage to run faster? Maybe. I, I don't know. It was just a little... Just change the way we describe it. Yeah, that's a good point about the adrenergic surge. I should mention there are also studies looking, measuring epinephrine and norepinephrine concentrations in patients who have had these arrest scenarios. And there is a, a tremendous increase in the uh, catecholamines, obviously with exercise um, or with some of these other techniques. But no, so that's that's an interesting study. And so it sounds like we've, we've talked about um, agitated delirium and its definition, and we've talked about kind of um, some of the physiology behind it and some of the studies that have flipped into it or lack of studies, even talked about tasering and, and kind of the effect of that on the physiology of people and then the outcome. So, um, Steve, when you see a patient, or, or Adam, actually, when you see a patient, because you're going to be uh, you're going to be out there uh, practicing next year, when you see somebody who gets brought in and they're altered and they're agitated and excited and everyone's screaming in the room, wh what do you do? I usually yell at the patient. Um, to be honest, I... Can I just say that, by the way, there is always one person in the scenario who has decided that they should argue with the patient and argue them out of their delirium, and it never fails. It's usually the least useful person in the room has decided that when the patient decides to swear and insult your mother, this person has to start responding about that patient's mother and saying, oh no, we're going to get you, there's more of you. And maybe, I don't, I don't know what it is, but... It never seems to work. I've never seen the patient go, you know, you're right. Words hurt. <laughs> and, and I've never seen them calm down. And if anything, it just gets everyone agitated in this mob mentality. And I have literally, sometimes the most constructive thing I can do in these situations is have that person step out of the room. Because the agitated, crazy patient has to be there. But the agitated, crazy doctor or nurse or tech or security guard does not. In all honesty, I try to check my psychosis at the door and go into the room and somehow at least assess the situation. And my favorite formula for undifferentiated loudness is 5 and 2 of droperidol with some Ativan and usually going I am and let my colleagues take care of that and I'll step out of the room and come back in 10 minutes with a nicely quiet and sleeping patient, right, wrong, or indifferent. I usually try to extract myself from it because I, it's so easy to, you know, join in on the group restraint or get caught up in the cyclone of chaos that surrounds these patients and get brought down with it and providing sometimes what not, might not be ideal care for your patients. Yeah, I don't think there are any, there are no trials about what is best kind of sedation. And so personally, I think Whatever you can get rapidly, whatever can be given safely is appropriate. And whether that's haloperidol, droperidol, or, or whatever your antipsychotic of choice is, along with some form of sedation, some form of benzodiazepine, I think is fine. Um, I think the most important thing to think about is no physical restraints without chemical restraints. I think that's it. That's Live that. better through pharmacology. And we should say that no one here today has any financial associations with the makers of Thorazine, uh, Haloperidol, or Joperidol, or Ativan. 
at least that I know of. My only financial affiliation is with the hospital. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, on on that note, I think that's a good note to uh, to end on. Thank you both for coming here today and talking about excited delirium. And uh, it's interesting to see how people approach it. And uh, I'm sure that we'll get some feedback on that. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me also. It's been a good time. Next up, our very own Stephanie Weiss, a resident at UMass, will give us her talk Pearl. I'm Stephanie Weiss. I'm a first-year resident at UMass, and this is my tox pearl. We had a patient who had recently given birth to her infant and was on buprenorphine to treat her heroin addiction. The question we had was whether it was okay for her to breastfeed the infant while she was taking buprenorphine. It turns out that buprenorphine is indeed excreted into the breast milk. However, since it's not readily absorbed by the GI tract, it appears to be safe for an infant to be breastfed by a woman who is on buprenorphine. And that's my tox pearl. That was a really great tox pearl from Stephanie. I just wanted to elaborate a little bit on something that I, I hear all the time, and I just wanted to clarify. You hear people talk about Suboxone, and if you look at the ingredients, you'll see that uh, in addition to the buprenorphine, there's also naloxone in it. And I have heard very smart, very experienced uh, physicians talk about how the naloxone must be in there to even out the high or to partially counter-effect the buprenorphine to to uh, prevent it from being too strong. And, and just to clarify that that's not why it's in there. So naloxone is actually not absorbed very well through the oral mucosa, which is how uh, Suboxone is normally given. And so you might ask yourself, why is there a medication in Suboxone that you can't really absorb that well? And uh, that's a good question. And you have to think about the population that's using it. So when it first came out, there was a big concern that drug users would just shoot their Suboxone to get high, just to inject the opioid agonist and thus get high. And so the naloxone was put in there knowing that uh, in order for naloxone to work, it really has to be injected. So when taken as directed, it has no effect. It's essentially as if it weren't there. But once somebody gets the bright idea to inject their suboxone intravenous, then they're also injecting the naloxone. And that precipitates uh, opioid withdrawal. And it's uh, swift and fierce and uh, they very quickly realize that they shouldn't have done that, and they'll get uh, diaphoretic and nauseous and vomiting and pretty much feel like they're going to die. And uh, I don't know if you've seen this. I've, I've seen it in my ED. If you do see this, though, you don't really have to intervene. It's mainly supportive measures that Aloxone wears off. They realize they're not going to die, and they've learned a valuable lesson, and you can kind of remind them not to inject their Suboxone. This is uh, only in the formulations of Suboxone that have naloxone in it, which are most of the formulations in the U.S., but uh, you might be seeing this in your department. And I just wanted to uh, elaborate a little bit on that really excellent tox pearl from Stephanie.
Next up is a bit of an informal session. It's myself, Kavita Babu, and Ed Boyer. And uh, we recently were lucky enough to attend the NACCT in Washington, D.C. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to sort of get a behind-the-scenes look at what happens at that at those kinds of conferences. Hello, and welcome to another segment here on Talks Talk. This is Matt Zuckerman, Toxicology Fellow at the UMass uh, Division of Toxicology. With me today are Kavita Babu and Ed Boyer. Hi, I'm Ed Boyer. I'm the Fellowship Training Director at University of Massachusetts. And I'm Kavita Babu. I'm a medical toxicologist at Brown University. Visiting from the south. That's right. Down south. And uh, we were all just at the NACCT, the North American Congress of Clinical Toxicology 2011, down in Washington, D.C., and uh, I thought this would be a good opportunity to give people listening an impression of what a toxicology conference is like, things that we saw, things that we liked, didn't like. Um, the weather was pretty much horrible, so we, we spent a lot of the time at the conference. Yeah, that's a first for us. I was there for six days, so it was a lengthy conference, but a nice combination of speakers and posters and uh, mingling also, getting to shake hands. Yeah, those. I mean, it's the one... It's the one meeting per year where everybody can get together and just talk about what's going on in toxicology, how's research. I mean, you catch up with all the other toxicologists. For a small community of clinicians and scientists, it's really a fun place to go. Kavita, did you have a good time? I had a great time. Thanks for asking. So the meeting started with the pre-meeting symposia, and on the first day we had the opportunity to look at drugs in the law at the AACT-sponsored pre-meeting symposium. The AACT being the American Association of Clinical Toxicology. That's right. So their pre-meeting symposium was really focused on drugs and legislation, either for legalization, different studies that talked about decriminalization as well as opportunities for harm reduction. I thought it was, I thought it was pretty compelling. Actually, one of my favorite speakers from the pre-symposium uh, Bob Hoffman gave a really good talk on the medicinal use of marijuana, which you hear about all the time in the popular press, and I personally didn't know a lot about it in the scientific literature, and he really reviewed a lot of the studies on, quote-unquote, medicinal marijuana for nausea and pain, I guess glaucoma, and, and asthma. asthma. Yes, I, yeah, I have to say I was surprised by the marijuana for asthma paper. Smoking for asthma. Yeah, right. Yes but it seemed like uh, there wasn't much data behind it in terms of supporting it as a drug. It's, it's not, there's no, almost no data supporting its use as a therapeutic agent. And if you, that, that's kind of beside the point because the medical marijuana route is not designed to release marijuana for people who need medicinal agents because we know that marijuana is not as good as pharmaceuticals that we have. The, the purpose of medical marijuana is, you know, honestly, straight out legalization. And if you talk to people, Mark Kleinman, who are big uh, legalization, or as they call themselves, policy advocates, they, they acknowledge outright, it's not about medicine, it's about making pot legal. Yeah, and I think the scary thing is, I'm not that well read on it, and the legislation is outpacing sort of the medical knowledge on it. But I think there's going to be a lot of people who have passively absorbed through osmosis all of this um, advocacy for marijuana, and a lot of people are going to go, well, the side effects are pretty low, why not? Which isn't to say, this isn't about whether or not marijuana should be legal or illegal, it's really about whether or not it's a health concern in terms of using it as a therapeutic. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that Dr. Hoffman mentioned is that 
many of the patients who are being prescribed medical marijuana are being prescribed marijuana for chronic pain issues. And that's been my experience with patients I've seen in the emergency departments in Rhode Island who report taking medical marijuana. It's not for chemotherapy-induced nausea. It's not for anorexia related to cancer. In fact, it's been a number of 30-year-olds with chronic musculoskeletal pain. 19-year-olds with back pain. 30-year-olds with shoulder pain. And then you go to some place like Denver and you see the old advertising medical marijuana. And I I just, it's um, it's very important that we stay a profession and uh, not a consumer demand-driven business. So I think that was an interesting talk. I also liked during the pre-symposium, there was a, a specialist from the FBI. So on the second day, the American College of Medical Toxicology hosted a pre-meeting symposium on the intersection of the federal government and medical toxicology with representatives from a number of government agencies including Dr. Cynthia Morris-Kukowski from the FBI lab. So she gave a really excellent talk on a kind of uh, medical toxicology and, and lab analysis in novel situations. There was a case of a drug-assisted sexual assault and testing. She went through some novel methods, and essentially it was just cases that were slightly horrific to hear about, um, but very challenging from a tox perspective and identifying agents of, of sort of abuse and use. Really, I think we're very used to sending a tox or sending a comtox, but what do you do when there isn't a lab assay for the drug that you want to test for or testing for something in a sample that you're not used to testing for? I mean, even hair is rather extreme for a lot of scenarios. So that was, that was a really enjoyable talk I enjoyed also. I really like the uh, personalized medicine and pharmacogenomics talk given by Dr. Lawrence Lesko, who's at the University of South Florida now, but was formerly at the FDA. Dr. Lesko talked specifically about the use of genetic testing to predetermine whether people are susceptible to adverse effects of certain medications. For example, CYP genotyping prior to receiving warfarin. And his description of personalized medicine and where we've come from and where we're headed really highlighted some of the future opportunities to prevent adverse effects before they happen with genetic testing. It raises a lot of questions though in terms of who's going to bear the burden of cost and how drug approval and regulation is going to happen once these tests become more commonplace. I thought that was very interesting. I liked also that he used himself as, a, as an example, testing his own a CYP and genetic activity before starting a medication such as Coumadin. That was that was really very good. But it is kind of geeky. Yes, it's whenever you. That's like those people that have their their gene sequence on the wall in a painting. You can you can actually do that. You can send off your blood or your sample and get your your DNA back. I've always wondered how you know. It's yours. Yeah. You confirm. In your lab. Okay. You, you've never done that, I guess. No, I know, you, I've you, never verified my own DNA. Have you ever purchased a star name? No, I've done I have, that. I've not. There is a, there is a Kavita star. And so I, I thought it was really enjoyable. I also liked the, um, the discussion about the nicotine vaccine, which is something that I think if I had heard about 10 years ago, I would have said is probably BS. But seeing the data on it in terms of immunizing someone, forming antibodies, binding nicotine so it doesn't get to the brain so that it seems to possibly be less addictive is rather novel and interesting, or even in pregnant women in terms of reducing the exposure to the fetus of nicotine. And I think the other lecture that I really enjoyed from the from the pre-meeting symposium was Dr. Josh Shear, 
from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention talking about his experience with the Epidemiology Intelligence Service and his travels to countries like Malawi, his travels in Central America, looking for toxicologic epidemics in a realm that was largely populated by infectious disease specialists. His role is really fascinating and important. Yes, very cool. Travel to exciting places, see things you don't normally see in the States. And solve puzzles nobody else can solve. Yes, absolutely. And then in terms of traveling elsewhere and seeing places, uh, I liked some of the posters too. There were some posters from Iran that were just really interesting and mind-blowing in terms of seeing agents that we just don't see in the U.S. or, or just not having some of the same um, sort of tools available. Yeah, they, they have for a long time brought a number of really interesting posters to the tox conference, and it's a shame because it's a, you know, I think it's an area where a lot of American medical toxicologists would like to get involved and do research and you know, provide assistance with patient care, but because of political, political climates, it's, it's just difficult to do so. But they have, they, have fascinating, uh, they have fascinating intoxications there. There are a number of posters from overseas, but there were also a number of great posters from domestically. And that's one of the fun things. It's nice to see people uh, from, from the specialty from other areas, but you also get to see exposures. And there was a case, I think it was from the Midwest, of death by enema. And it was one of those posters that everyone sort of starts to read and then um, chuckles a little bit. It was surprising and real. And I guess there was a gentleman who had had a fetish involving rectal administration of liquids and essentially did a self-administration of wine and developed uh, alcohol toxicity and actually, I mean, they was found dead. Oops. Kavita, I, I, for the podcast audience, what you can't see is that Dr. Babu is, is making a face at this. <laughs> There's always a poster that just sticks in people's mind at every at every conference, and I think this was the poster for everybody. Some years it's the detox from methamphetamine by injecting people with cottonmouth venom and chucking them in a cold a cold creek in northern Georgia. This year, I'm sure the person who submitted the deep toxicity in a nudist thought that they were going to be remembered forever for this. But I, I think it just got trumped by the uh, death by enema paper. Clismophilia, a word I never knew before. Clismophilia, yes. Uh, it, it actually, so what was interesting about that poster, though, was it talked about it being the first reported scholarly case of it. But that's not actually true. In the, in the popular media, there have been multiple other cases of death via alcohol enema. There was a woman in Texas in a few years ago who was actually charged with manslaughter when her husband died from a sherry enema. He was a Darwin Award winner, by the way. And um, luckily, they dropped the charges. But I think the general rule from that poster, though, which was interesting, though, is, is novel routes of exposure should be considered, especially in terms of kinetic absorption, because with that amount of surface area of the colon, the alcohol level can go up very, very quickly because you have all this absorptive area. Additionally, there was some theory that maybe it bypassed some hepatic metabolism and thus caused higher levels of alcohol. But uh, So it was both a chuckle but also an interesting poster. Not a chuckle. Not a chuckle. You did not chuckle with no. that. Some people chuckle. Was kind of... It was also a kind of an ad against boxed wine. I feel like, of course, it's boxed wine. Another nail in the coffin of boxed wine. Yeah. If you have to die from some sort of wine, at least let it be boxed. That's true. Well, I think it's... Hence, nice. hence the name. There was also a fantastic poster on uh, heroin administration in, in, I think, a three-year-old that was done by... just I don't know who, who made the poster, but genius, genius poster. That would be Dr. Zuckerman's poster, in case anybody was wondering. 
but it was great. Actually, I really liked your poster, and as a non-author on that poster, I think the thing that was really compelling about that case was that we forget that children can have uh, occult exposures to drugs of abuse, to pharmaceuticals, and that the history, unfortunately, may not be obvious. In this case, this was a little girl who came in saying, mom's boyfriend gave me a shot. It turned out that when urine drug screening was sent, when a puncture wound was discovered in her antecubital fossa, that the child had indeed had an exposure to heroin. It highlights again how important prompt evaluation is with drug screens. There was identification of six monoacetyl morphine as well as morphine and codeine, I believe, in her drug screen. And it also highlights the role of physicians in identifying medical or pharmaceutical child abuse. And I think that can be notoriously difficult. I think all kinds of child abuse can be very subtle and very hard because it's it's something that we don't recognize all that often and that is, is very hard to discern, and the risk of missing it are so high, and um, I think it's very tricky. And tox-related child abuse, I think, is going to be more of an issue in the future. You had mentioned a talk that you really enjoyed, Kavita. I really enjoyed Jeff Brent's career achievement lecture on junk science. I think this is so important because now medical research has become so accessible to the lay public, to lawyers, to organizations, but there isn't necessarily the same level of scrutiny about what constitutes good science. And I think that the, the sort of cautionary tale is really of autism and vaccines. Dr. Brent talked at length about the Lancet article that started the whole trend towards not vaccinating your children because of concerns regarding autism and how bad science really created a generation of children that were at risk for diseases that we thought we had put away decades ago. I think that's true. That was a really good talk because it's, I think one of the recurring themes throughout the conference was the intersection of government and medicine. And so we heard a lot from government figures in terms of the federal government and the FDA, but also in terms of the courts, and that's a legal body. And just legal minds and the legal process function differently than the medical process. So for a scientist to say that something is not significantly related just generally sometimes means that they don't have the data for it. But when a person hears that, or a lawyer or a judge, they interpret that differently, and and they want to prove a negative. And so in some of these junk science cases, first of all, uh, understanding the uncertainty of the scientific process, e even when that article came out about the link between autism, uh, possibly, and the vaccine, that article was very, very couched in terms of how it was not trying to attribute causation. But especially since the authors had to retract the results. And so it's, it's been officially retracted by the Lancet largely on the basis of falsification of data. Falsification of data, the investigator, the lead investigator with it uh, has been run up on, uh, has been run up on uh, charges related to it. A number of the co-investigators have said that their comments were misconstrued or misrepresented. And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it was a, uh, it was not scientifically valid to begin with, and even though it's now been proven to not be scientifically valid, we still are confronted with you know, like this specter of vaccination causing autism, which you know, increasingly the data is that it, it does not. And I have to say that, by and large, I'm not 
people will have misunderstandings of science, they will have misunderstandings of medicine. I don't expect everyone to subscribe to my philosophy. I guess the biggest concern was that it has now led to decreased vaccination rates and, and several outbreaks of measles and other child-borne illnesses that were, as of previously, sort of unheard of in the United States. And it's really hard to put back, what do they say, a, a lie gets around the world by the time the truth gets its uh, shoes on. And I think that's true. He also gave a nice talk about uh, the controversy surrounding silicon breast implants during that talk. And really, I think, highlighted sometimes the pace of science versus the pace of the courts and the public. And in that particular case, you want to help people. And if there's a concern that that silicone is causing toxicity or causing systemic illnesses, you want to step in and both stop the continued use of it, but also give people reparations. But to understand the causation or the effects of the substance takes years to do. And that can be very difficult. And in that case, I think it was very illuminating um, in terms of, well, his experience with it and how uh, it ended up not panning out as much. But I think that all of these cases highlight the fact that we need to be our own spokespeople. And I think that we look for the burden of proof. We look for hard science while actresses and actors are getting up in front of the public and telling them how it really is. I wouldn't presume to act on screen. I don't think they should pretend that they're doctors. And I think sometimes the gloves do have to come off. And you know, we need to have a more public face, but we also have to cultivate trust because it seems like why people are more willing to follow Tom Cruise or Jenny McCarthy than the recommendations of huge medical bodies. It's just that we are, it's easy to paint us as the guys in the black hat who are covering up a conspiracy. On the other hand, I think that creating sort of credible and familiar faces like Dr. Sanjay Gupta or, or doctors in public positions where they can actually try to relate to the public in a way that they understand and trust, I think that's a critical public health mission. I think that's true, and I think it's often overlooked. I think there's a school of thought that is largely going out of out of popularity, but there's a school of thought that as a physician, it's not my job to put a public face on medicine, to explain things in simple terms, to try and interact with the local press and and with local organizations. My job is to talk to the patient and tell them what they need. And if some quote unquote crackpot is going to believe some crackpot theory, I'm not going to stoop to address that because they don't understand the science behind it and they don't understand the medicine. And I think that that sort of approach towards these types of issues ends up ballooning in the end and causing problems. Well, the backfire. blowback from that with the vaccines and autism is dead children. Way to kill the conversation. You know, one of the one of the things that I enjoyed doing at the the tox conferences is the, the the poster walk. A poster walk is where we just get a number of interested people. Usually, they're junior faculty and fellows who come along with one or more senior faculty, but we comment on the posters. They can range from the absolutely serious to the humorous. They can range from talking about how it's, how it's a scientifically solid poster to how there's such poor science conducted in it. It's almost unbelievable. And it even includes the design of the poster and how the information is presented. And I think that that's actually one of the more important important missions that we conduct educationally at the tox conference because if you have a great idea if you have great findings if you have outstanding data and you cannot present it in a clear concise and competent manner people will not 
pay attention to your work. And if you do good work, people should pay attention to it. So when we go through the poster walk, we talk about whether or not the organization of the poster is correct, whether the writing is good or bad. If they use, even if they use correct grammar, we comment on the resolution of the, of the photographs that are added to it. Because if you have a great message, you don't want somebody saying, wow, I couldn't see what they were talking about in that, in that crummy photograph. Or you know, like I would have I would have enjoyed learning more, but you know like I was too busy trying to figure out what the sentence said. Yeah, I think that's very true. And is there any are there any sort of common pitfalls that you see people fall into, or th ways of conveying information that you really appreciated? I think the common pitfall that a lot of academicians fall into is they don't consider very carefully the the right sentence that conveys the right meaning or the right word that has the correct connotation. Yeah, you know, I think Mark Twain said it really well. Choose the right word, not its second cousin. I have to say that one of the best things I like about the poster session also is the, the generally during most conferences is a period of time when the authors are expected to stand in front of their posters. And if you get a chance, this is always my favorite time to visit also, is because very rarely when you're reading a journal article or seeing data do you have the chance, the author who created that data right there, to ask questions and interact. And it's 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 unique it's a unique opportunity, and I really enjoyed it because when I was reading a poster, um, aside from evaluating the merits of the poster and how it was presented, and I think those are really excellent points and things to look out for, I was able to say, well, what do you think about this, or what do you think about that, or what's the implication of that? So I was, I was really, I liked the opportunity to, to discuss the poster with the author right then and there and to get feedback and to give feedback. And I just, I think as we were becoming a very electronic age, interaction with creators of knowledge is is decreasing and and so just being able to interact and that's one of the great things about the conference in general is just in between sessions or after sessions sitting down and just chatting with people and and uh, just forming sort of social connections I think adds to the just the cohesiveness and, and toxicology is a is a sort of a, a relatively small group even as a resident I remember going to this conference last year when I was considering toxicology and just really appreciating the opportunity to put faces to names and meet people. And these presentations are interesting because it's a mix of both medical toxicologists who are academicians who are doing research, who are seeing things, and then there's also a lot of input from the poison control community. I mean, there's a lot of overlap. And so a lot of poison control posters are, these are what we see, these are what happens, these are the outcomes. And a lot of the posters that were there were, we saw this type of ingestion, we told them not to come to the hospital, they didn't come to the hospital, and the conclusion that they drew was, these types of ingestions don't need to come to the hospital. And there's no stratification by dosage, by type of administration, by clinical symptoms. Because when you call a poison center and you get a phone call and you get a transcript of it, it's very difficult to get a complete picture. It's even less than a chart review. Yeah, right? that, that sort of poster's been the bane of the poison control center world for years. Because, truthfully, they have a stock protocol that they use. We saw... Fill in the blank for uh, fill in the blank for the drug in you know, number of ingestions between fill in the blank for the date. We recommended that fill in a blank for the percentage stay at home. We treated fill in the blank for the percentage in healthcare facilities. We conclude that we can treat fill in the blank for the drug ingested at home in fill in the blank for the percentage of cases. I mean, you see that again and again and again from poison control center after poison control center after poison control center, and then they report it in the literature too. So. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that the concern is that when you do a study where you tell people not to come to the hospital and then your conclusion is 
so don't many people the, don't come to the hospital. Don't come to the hospital. <laughs> it's it's the, the 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 data is 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 harder to figure out what it actually means in terms of clinical relevance. Well, I think the biggest concern that I have with that literature is simply that we never know whether or not the exposure actually occurred. And so when you find a child holding buprenorphine in their hand, as opposed to a child found with buprenorphine in their mouth, those two exposures may not be coded entirely differently. And so unfortunately, if you're found with buprenorphine in your hand, you never had an exposure, you get a hundred of those, suddenly your denominator is going to look like keeping buprenorphine in kids at home is a safe idea. Right. And, 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 we, and we know that's not the right thing to do with it. The, the hard thing with poison center data is when the sum of your encounter is over the phone, it is really hard to guarantee that you have a true sense of the whole exposure. And even even then, follow-up is notoriously difficult. I myself have done poison center follow-up, and you're essentially trying to call hospitals to find out how the patient is doing. And, and I think you we've all initiated poison center consultations, and they're important, and they're vital, and they're helpful. But very often, you're standing there while the patient is sick, and you're reading off the blood pressure and the heart rate and the temperature and all of these things, and you're thinking, I really want to get back to patient care. And I myself am a toxicologist who, who have a dedicated interest in trying to get some of that data out there, so I can only imagine that some of my less motivated colleagues are going to be even less likely to sort of give information. But but then when you're dealing with patients that just never actually even see a doctor and never go to a hospital, it becomes really hard to draw conclusions from that data. It's even worse than it seems, though, because like in studies done recently through poison control centers where the specialists knew that a research study was going on where there was IRB approval to collect specific data and they had poison control center directors coming in every day to remind them to collect data. Of the information you'd really like to have, gender, age, blood pressure, pulse, and temperature. Of those five things, the missing data rate was almost 80%. And you simply cannot do high quality studies with that amount of data that's missing. I think some of the big thematic elements that came out of this conference were that the the posters represented the width and breadth of bath salt exposures. And synthetic cathinones were analyzed from the perspective of poison control center calls, from the perspective of clinical presentations, deaths associated with, the perspective of uh, adequate urine drug screening protocols or urine drug testing protocols to identify synthetic cathinones. And then there was even one poster, which I thought was very nicely done, that talked about the accelerated path to regulation of bath salts based on clinical data and uh, clinician experience. No, I think that's that's definitely true. That One of the things that kind of saddened me, though, was the number of posters that replicated each other's findings and data. And it's because the mechanism for exchange of information can sometimes be, be difficult. We don't know that somebody else is seeing um, the same type of exposure, which is why national publications like the MMWR and, and things that are published weekly and rapidly, uh, podcasts, can, can be helpful in terms of disseminating information. And actually, that uh, at this conference, I went to the um, Toxic sort of group meeting, which Toxic is the... It's, uh, it's Jeff Brand and Paul Wax who Jeff really Brand. drive forward, but it's, uh, it's Toxic is a... Uh, poisoning database operated by American College of Medical Toxicology, ACMT. And it's different from Poison Control Center and other databases because it's actually about a toxicologist at the bedside filling in specific data fields. And ultimately, I mean, the numbers are smaller. It's not 
Like if the numbers are smaller because the data is collected from specific locations, specific academic medical centers, but the data is also far higher quality because it is the data is far more detailed and therefore far more robust. And the promising thing, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a, a toxicology fellow who enters a lot of that data, and sometimes I get frustrated with having to enter it, and I wonder what the, what the end point is. But there are publications coming out now from this data. And additionally, because all of this data essentially gets a unique identifier that allows you to backtrack to charts from the institutions, I foresee a, a time in the near future where you can really do a, a multi-center study looking at basalt exposures or novel uh, pharmacology exposures or herbal exposures in a way that you just can't do at one site. When you're at one site, sometimes right. you just don't see enough of these rare exposures, but the toxic database puts all of those together and allows you to generate the numbers that you can get. Right now, the only way to do that in terms of a national study is to use poison center data, which we just talked about is limited. But with the toxic database, it's moving forward and it's getting better every year. I think that will allow that type of, um, that type of study. That's exactly right. Toxic is a, it's, um, it's a pretty robust data system and it's growing and it's uh, growing its importance every day. Before I forget about it though, I wanted to say one thing about academics and medical toxicology and put it in the context of the bath salts outbreak and NK2 to a certain extent. You know, bath salts appeared, bath salts became a problem, bath salts have now been criminalized, bath salts have disappeared. So you can't hang your hat on I did lots of publications related to bath salts because you know, from the time they appeared to the time they disappeared is what, a year and a half? So you have to, you know, like if you're going to be an academician, you have to figure out a way to couch or to define an academic career that looks at items like that but isn't limited to it. And you know, like when I think about it, it's new ways of identifying uh, new ways of identifying emerging drug trends, ways of identifying new drugs of abuse, using some pretty creative alternative data sets that are out there, which really medical toxicologists haven't even begun to tap yet. Things like Arrowhead are a great resource for that. Websites such as bluelight.new. Uh, you, can, you can tell pretty much when a drug appeared in the United States by when it popped up on the boards at Blue Light. So, you know, one-liner on Blue Light, just because we've discussed Arrowhead on this show, but Blue Light one-liner for people that aren't familiar with it. Blue Light is it's a, um, it's a web forum on drugs. Whatever you want to say about drugs, you can... It seems like it's pretty inclusive. You know, like If you want to find out a way to administer it, if you wanted to try a new way of dosing a medication, if you wanted to find out what the effects were at a particular, at a particular concentration or particular volume, you can get that sort of information on Blue Light. You know, it's it's uh, it's an interesting it's an interesting resource. They do work with researchers in terms of providing information to them. They provide it free of charge, and they've even worked with some some companies in the Boston area in terms of doing drug recognition studies. I think one of the other topics for the discussion that came up at this meeting is just the prescription opioid epidemic, and the awareness of our community about the need for action in terms of preventing prescription opioid deaths, decreasing opioid diversion, and decreasing access to opioids, it was pretty clear that this is something that we're going to need to assume our leadership role on, especially with the rising death rates that everybody was talking about at this meeting. Yeah, and I think that's, um, that's going to be something that's going to come up in the spring meeting at the, uh, the Opioid Academy. The Prescription Opioid Academy on March 15th. 
March 15th, the Prescription Opioid Academy in San Diego. Sponsored by the American College of Medical Toxicology. Which we do not get any money from. That's right. I want to thank you both for, for being here today and talking about that. It was a great conference, uh, all the better for the wonderful people that were there. I look forward to the spring conference, where hopefully maybe we'll do some uh, recording live and get some more information on that. And uh, just another insight into the small but wonderful world of medical toxicology. Thank you. Cool. And that concludes this episode of Tox Talk. Thanks for joining me. Once again, Tox Talk is a regular monthly podcast from the Division of Toxicology, University of Massachusetts School of Medicine, and Department of Emergency Medicine. Uh, you might be wondering uh, why this episode uh, seems to have come out a little bit sooner. It hasn't been a whole month, and we just got such a positive response from the first episode. Wanted to keep things going, so uh, it sort of accelerated the release of this one. Next month's episode will be our Halloween-themed episode, where we'll get to talk about Halloween-themed exposures and ingestions and things like that. Also be having a, a sort of a spirited discussion of dibigatrin, a new uh, blood thinner that we're starting to see in our emergency departments. And I'm really glad that we're getting a chance to do that. Uh, I'm really glad that we're getting a chance to talk about it. Just the other day in the ED, I, I saw someone who had been on Coumadin for literally years and actually was in the minority, had stable INRs, had no troubles with Coumadin or side effects, but just decided didn't want to get his INR checked anymore, so uh, saw an ad on television and got his doctor to switch him over to Dibigatrin. And uh, what we'll be talking about in the next episode are some of the pluses and minuses of this new medication and, and whether or not this is appropriate. Or... You can also contact us by visiting our website at talkstalk.org and clicking on the Contact Us link. Uh, feel free to send us any questions related to talks or cases you've seen. Uh, our intern, Neil, was away for a while, uh, but now he's back out of rehab and uh, doing well. I guess it's, it's partially my fault. I should have noticed all the cases of end dust disappearing. What office needs that much end dust? But... Uh, doing better now and uh, if anyone needs any end dust we have an excess supply but neil is ready and waiting to receive your communications and uh, pass them on to us and we can talk about those on the next program i'm matt zuckerman and this is talks talk mm-hmm.